0: Good evening. Hello, everyone. My name is Karen Nett. I'm the Director of Child Development Services with the Braille Institute. I'd like to welcome you here for the Dr. Bill Telephone Series. Dr. Bill's Telephone Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. So, um, we have a special guest tonight. Um, We have Dr. Bill and we have Dr. Twanzi. And uh, Dr. Twanzi is a retinal um, specialist. And so, I'm very pleased to introduce both Dr. Bill and Dr. Twanzi. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Karen. And Dr. Tawanzi, thank you very, very much for being on our show.
2: Oh, it's my privilege, Bill. Thank you for the invitation.
1: You know, just to let everybody know, uh, Dr. Tawanzi is really one of the most well-respected pediatric retina specialists in the world. Uh, He performed his undergraduate studies at the University of Michigan before going to medical school at Johns Hopkins. And uh, I'm even happy to tell you I know about his family because his son also attends Johns Hopkins. So that is one very, very intelligent family. Dr. Tawanzi is the founder of the California Retina Institute. And he has offices all over California. You know, Dr. Twanzig, how many offices do you actually have now?
2: Um, We currently (laughs) have uh, six and three more about to open.
1: So it will be nine nine soon. So that's nine offices. And, you know, I want to tell you something. Did you know there's only seven days in a week? How are we going to go to all of them?
2: <laughs> Isn't that a shame? I know right? <laughs> you, you,
1: you can't. You can't pack up, pack in enough fun, though You know it's, it's hard. Oh, oh my goodness! You know I'm. I'm. I'm very serious with this question, though. Have you ever considered having a plane to take you from one location to the other? At times, well, I'm. I am finally. Going
2: to hire um, a charter service that will take me um, from um, once once every other week. That'll take me from our Tulare office to our Palm Springs location. Um, That will save me about half a day of driving. So I, I. um, I'm looking forward to that because I used to, I used to fly up to children in Central California to do all their ROP exams. And I, and that was my favorite part of the week, just being up there in the clouds. Um so we will resume that, that one, one, but it wow. is, uh, for the most part, I won't, I'm just, I, actually I don't spend that much time telling. Not, not as much as you think.
0: Oh
1: gosh! Hey, well, I'll tell you one thing: there are so many families, there's so many children who are so grateful that you do that you do work so hard and you cover such a long area because it's not easy for people to get an appointment with the right doctor. Yeah, so, doctor, you know, Tuanzi, I'd like for you to to begin first. Would you explain to our audience what is an ophthalmologist and what is required for one to specialize in the retinas of children like you do? It's not easy.
2: Okay. Wow. Okay. So an ophthalmologist is a medical doctor, someone who's gone to medical school, so they are qualified to be a physician and surgeon, and who's also, after medical school, done um, at a minimum of four years of training to become a general ophthalmologist. <laughs> and that training is uh, specified by the American Board of Ophthalmology, and... <clears throat> It involves rotating through all the specialties within the field and perform, seeing a, a certain number of patients and uh, performing a certain number of surgeries, um, and then that qualifies one to be, become a general ophthalmologist, which, you know, so, someone who does comprehensive exams and usually cataracts and either procedures and things like that, um, and... Retina specialists are ophthalmologists who want to further um, do a more in depth study in the retina,
1: <clears throat>
2: and that involves training beyond <laughs> beyond residency in what's called a fellowship, which is typically two years of extra study um, usually. At an academic center, uh, where one focuses on, uh, taking care of diseases and surgery of, of the retina. And that would qualify, uh, the ophthalmologist to do, uh, general retina diseases and surgery. Um, and then there are some subspecialties, um, within the field of retina, and one of those is pediatric retina. There, there aren't that many pediatric retina. Uh, no, they're not. In the, in the, in the world. Um, there are some, some, you know, historically there's been some gurus who have um, sort of focused their work on that. And uh, I, when I finished my general retina, I was very interested in diseases like retinopathy, prematurity, and in general, retinal vascular diseases. So I, I designed a fellowship myself to spend an extra 18 months in pediatric retina working with those people like Tetsuo Hiroshi in Boston and Mike Tracy in Detroit. And oh, then, wow. You uh, did? And then, Yeah, I did. And then, and then I was recruited by USC and there I started. Um, the first um, pediatric retina fellowship on the, the west in the Western U.S.
1: That's so that is so impressive. I I can't believe that you actually outlined your own uh, type of a specialty. That well, is really a, 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 unheard of.
2: It's a relatively new area. The diseases are very different than the adult diseases. Um, And the management was just um, really evolving. Uh, In fact, there's been really rapid progress uh, in the field, especially in the area of retinopathy and prematurity. When I came to L.A. in in two thousand and one, um, you know, uh I spent a great deal of time every week taking care of very advanced cases of retinopathy prematurity and, and doing surgery on those. Um and it was really busy and those patients had fairly severe disease with limited visual potential. Um subsequently our technique Have, uh, for screening and early management have become more refined with, uh, you know, new protocols that Nick used for controlling oxygen saturation and optimizing nutrition for uh, premature neonates and also, uh, Early intervention with um, laser, uh, with protocols that that evolved through several multi-center uh, randomized national studies, and then uh, more, even more recently, with int- introduction of anti-vascular field growth factor agents that we can inject in, in babies with with uh, retinopathy of prematurity. Uh, I was involved in a study, uh, that was published in, uh, December 2011 in the New England Journal of Medicine called the Beat Rock Study, which, you know, showed a profound, uh, difference in outcomes with the use of, of, of abstinence. Um, and that all these things have kind of revolutionized the situation. So we're not seeing nearly as many um, kids with, you know, the higher stages of retinopathy, you know, prematurity, like stage four and five, as we used to when I first came here. In fact, it's few and far between nowadays, and, and most of the the kids that I now operate with that with that level could be uh, ones that come from outside the U.S. for special treatment after having had, you know, certain outcomes in their home country
1: that is really really great news I didn't realize it was that major of a difference but when the most severe cases are cases stage four and stage five you're saying that today you don't see as many of those kids in the United States
2: Uh, Very rarely. I mean, I can tell you that, um, you know, the the screening has really stepped up. I screened for about 10 hospitals um, throughout Central and uh, Southern California, um, and I haven't seen Probably ten years out of out of my hospital oh, and, really? uh, I um, yeah and um, I mean it's pretty pretty rare now. Uh, there are there are some kids that have a complicated course um, and there may be
1: do remember having patients with stage four and stage five ROP, but now things are, you know, really different, and boy, we have a lot to be thankful to these researchers and doctors such as you who are doing that research, so thank you. Uh, Dr. Twansey, would you please inform the audience about how the retina develops? And also, you know, let them know some people actually don't even know what the retina is or where it is uh inside the eye, and what it does, but okay
2: so one can think of a of the eye um, as as a camera, so in the front uh there are two lenses there's the first lens is the cornea, and the second lens is the crystal lens and and those two structures that you know basically serve to focus light, and there's a diaphragm or an aperture, which is the, the iris or the pupil, that um, also um, constricts or dilates to adjust the light um, coming to the film of the camera. So the light travels through those lenses, through the, the pupil, and then travels across a jelly cavity called the vitreous and onto the film of the camera, which is the retina. The retina is a um, nine-layer um, neurosensory membrane that, that lines the back of the eye. And um, it has photoreceptors that absorb light, and then um, there's some... Signal processing that happens between the different layers, and that light information is turned into basically an electrical, um, circuitry information that travels out of the eye to a cable called the optic nerve, which is also made of nerve fibers. So the eye, all, <coughs> the, the retina, and the optic nerve are are an extension of the brain. And then the the optic nerve sends the information into the visual processing um, network uh, inside the brain. And actually, about two-thirds of the cerebrum is devoted to processing vision. And the, the visual information travels through uh, these radiations uh, and finally reaches the occipital cortex in the back of the the brain uh, which is uh, where uh, vision is processed as an actual um, image um, so that's basically how it works the retina is um, a highly metabolic tissue in fact it's the most highly metabolic tissue in the bo- in the human body, um, so it requires a lot of energy to keep it functioning. And for that reason, it has two different circulations uh, to provide oxygen and nutrition to the retina. There is the choroid, which is a uh, you can think of it as a lake uh, or a sinusoidal. Uh, pattern of, uh, channels outside of the retina that provides, uh, nourishment to the outer third and then the retinal blood vessels, uh, within the inner third, third of the retina that, uh, and those, the, the, the retinal blood vessels are what, um affected in of prematurity and other retinal vascular disorders. So the retina develops actually fairly late in um, in terms of fetal development. The eye first forms; it starts out as some neural uh, tissue that sort of invaginates and forms a sphere. And then uh, the the optic nerve forms, and um, there are uh, sort of channels that form within the retina (laughs) as it's evolving. And then blood vessels start to extend from the center part of the retina at the optic nerve all the way to the periphery. And they don't, the blood vessels don't, reach the periphery until close to the due date of the child. And that, that uh, process of, of retinal vascular development has a pre-programmed phase um, and a metabolic phase. The pre-programmed phase is something that's um, you know, genetically structured to occur, um, and that's in the very central area. But then after that, those blood vessels require a certain stimulus for them to form all the way to the periphery. And that stimulus is a demand for oxygen and a release of growth factors by retinal cells that, that are hungry for oxygen. And the the issue in uh, retinopathy and prematurity is that um, the the child is born uh, before those retinal blood vessels are fully formed, and they're exposed to higher levels of oxygen than they normally would be inside the womb. So, th- because the, the premature child has immature lungs, they're required to have supplemental oxygen, and that supplemental oxygen can uh, will also uh, diffuse or disperse into the retinal tissue, and it will take away that drive for the blood vessels to form. And so the, the blood vessels stagnate, and that's the first stages of retinopathy and prematurity and then what happens subsequent to that is that you know those those vessels stagnate and they basically stop growing, but as the child gets older, uh, there's a surge of metabolic demand in in retinal tissue that's now becoming more mature that doesn't have circulation within it, and so that retina that has no circulation uh decrease growth factors but in a in a very different fashion than the normal growth factors. It's kind of like growth factors out of control. And those super high normal growth factor levels cause an aberrant form of blood vessel
1: formation,
2: uh vessels form that are not nutritive, they don't support the retina, but they actually cause havoc within the retina. They grow onto the gel and they bleed and they contract and they um, displace the retina from its normal position, and will lead to retinal detachment in the severest cases in a funnel
1: configuration,
2: which really limits the visual potential.
1: Now, is there anything that ophthalmologists can either inject in the eye or uh does the laser obliterate sure. those abnormal blood vessels that are creating the problems?
2: Right, so first, you know... So, the the, the, the ophthalmologists in conjunction with the neonatologist try to control the amount of oxygen and the, the you know, try to control the process of retinal vascular development. But once it gets once it gets to the stage where there's the super high levels of those growth factors, then there are kind of two stage two main stages of treatment to suppress those growth factors and get the abnormal blood vessels to shrink away and one of those treatments the traditional one is um, ablation which usually is with laser or sometimes uh, freezing where selective spots within the retina are treated with thermal energy and what that does, it kind of, it kind of like, uh, selectively eliminates parts of the retina so that the oxygen demand is not as high. And usually we try to do this in a fashion where we eliminate, it's kind of like, like, uh, burning trees in order to save the forest. mm mm-hmm. Um, that's the analogy we typically think of. Uh, or, or talk about, and we try to be selective about where we treat to minimize the impact on vision because the the treatment can affect the visual field if it 's too extensive uh it can it can induce other problems like myopia or corneal um, swelling and things like that so um that is. One of the treatments that we used it was up until two thousand eleven the primary treatment and then the 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 new um, agents that have been developed are are basically um, molecules that bind the growth factors that the abnormal uh, that the that the that the Retina that's deprived of oxygen decrease these growth factors. We can inject antibodies, um, which are basically uh, proteins that um, bind to certain molecules. And um, the the growth factor is called vascular and co-growth factor. And the... Um, what we inject is called an anti-vascular endothelial growth factor compound. Um, we, you know, we call it anti-VEGF for vascular growth factor. And there's several of these on the market now. Um, the most common one being Avastin, which is um, very effective and also very inexpensive. It's the one used most throughout the world. Uh, there's another one called Lucentis, and another one called ILEA, and there's others that have been developed. It's actually a big business within ophthalmology. It's, um, these drugs were actually first developed for cancer treatment, and then some of them have developed been developed specifically for more common uh, Eye diseases that occur in adults like diabetic retinopathy and age-related macular degeneration. But these agents also are very effective uh, in more rare pediatric retinal disorders. So we've been benefited from the research that has been done in the adults. And now this is very common to inject these drugs into the eye. In fact, the number one eye procedure in the world, it used to be cataract surgery, but now is injection of an anti-VEGF agent to control blood vessels.
1: Wow, that's amazing. I I didn't know that. That is amazing, considering how many people have cataracts. Wow. Now, did you say that... The price of such as Avastin, anti-VEGF, that it is becoming more affordable, and how does medical and insurances respond when you make that recommendation? Is it a big hassle for for you to get that approved by the insurance? So. <clears throat>
2: um, it used to be a hassle when we first started to deal with these uh things. Um Avastin was originally developed for, for colon cancer and the company that made made it Genentech, also made uh a cousin drug, Lucentis, for for eye treatment. But the ophthalmologist quickly found out that the, the two drugs work fairly similarly and that one could get a large bottle of Levastin for the same price as a tiny bottle of Lucentis. And so you could actually get a total of 80 treatments out of one of these astin bottles uh, where you could only get one from the Lucentis. Oh gosh! And bo- bo- both of those were priced at around two thousand dollars. But so if you fractionate the Avastin, it, it, the price goes way down to about twenty dollars per dose, which is affordable. So, um gosh, that's great. So we 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 use it quite a bit. Manteca now um, does well. You know, standard Medi Cal recognizes uh, a vascular treatment for uh, retinopathy and prematurity, other retinal vascular diseases, um, uh, you know, diabetic retinopathy and inflammation. And it's easy to have that reimbursed. We, we you know, unfortunately, Medi is no longer. Just anymore. it's now mostly managed medi Some of the some of the HMOs um, hassle us uh, and give give a hard time for one thing or another. So we do end up giving a lot of of it away free. Uh, but um, I mean, it, that that doesn't seem to be a limiting factor at this point in time in patients.
1: So one of the things that the parents may expect, if their child receives the Avastin or Lucentis, Mm -hmm. any of these anti-VEGF treatments, it is something that can prevent further damage to the eye, but these children may not have the full amount of peripheral vision, that they may not see things way off to the side if they're handing the child a toy or if it's a child who's even crawling or walking. They may turn into a corner because they just didn't see it. Is that is that accurate?
2: Well, okay, this is a topic that's um, um, fascinating. Um, when... The anti-VEGF is is injected. Um, It's kind of like hell freezes over. You've You've got all of these abnormal blood vessels causing havoc, and suddenly they stop. It stops the abnormal blood vessels. It also stops the normal blood vessels. Then the child needs to be closely observed. Because what will happen is over a period of time um, the the normal blood vessels will eventually start to develop again. And sometimes the abnormal blood vessels will return again. And there's a condition called smoldering retinopathy and prematurity, which I first described around 2003. Uh, which is a situation where you have retinopathy and prematurity, but not that much in terms of growth factor production, but it can still lead to problems. But what, what we typically do is we monitor the child that's had uh, an anti-VEGF treatment. We usually see them every two weeks and and give them the maximum opportunity for the normal blood vessels to reach the periphery over time and if, if the blood vessels reach the periphery then they're out of the woods but sometimes the, the, the normal blood vessels fall short and there's an area of retina in the far periphery that has no circulation and that That area is a risk for abnormal blood vessels to form in scar tissue to form later in the child's life. It can even happen many years later into teenagehood. So um, we usually recommend that the children who don't have uh, full vascular development to have an angiogram study, which is blood flow, Circulation study using fluorescein at one year of age. Um, so we give them we give them a, typically a full year to develop, and then if, if they sort of fail at the one year mark, then our experience is that they're likely not going to develop any further. And so we do a blood flow study, and if we see abnormal circulation, then we'll do laser treatment—a light, a much, a much less concentrated uh, and less extensive laser treatment. Typically, now, laser treatment varies in its technique and intensity, and there's, there's, you know, there's a certain degree of finesse in, in doing it. And the the retina, not all of the retina, observes vision. If you if you think of the the eye as a sphere, and the the retina extends from the back in the center towards the front, when you because of the physics of light rays um when when you extend beyond the equator of the retina into the far periphery a lot of that retina doesn't serve vision it doesn't serve the visual field so you can do uh some laser out there in the far periphery and have a child with relatively intact visual field. um if when when the the laser becomes more central and more intense, then you start to more, you're more likely to have problems like, like, uh, visual field constriction and severe nearsightedness, um, and other potential complications like glaucoma and so forth. So, um, So that's a long answer to your question, but um, laser can constrict the visual field, but it can also
1: be done in a way that it doesn't constrict the visual field. So would it it actually be safe to say that since 2011, uh, the number of children with ROP who have tunnel vision you know very reduced peripheral vision has significantly reduced
2: yes absolutely
1: um, wow, I that's
2: great news used to, I used to see quite a bit of that and now it is um, fairly rare I have um you know a lot of kids that I've been following that are now now entering college. Um, <clears throat> and I'm actually uh, organizing um, a uh, a group for a lot of these kids and if there's anyone, anyone in the audience that's interested in participating in that if they have someone who's in their uh teenage years or early twenties with um severe um, you know vision changes uh related to childhood retinal vascular disease, they can email me or, or call call me on that. So and we can if they're interested in participating in that group. But so we're we're um we're we're finding kind of different different ways to manage it. Um and older people, but we're not seeing it nearly as much in
1: in um, new babies. Now, you know, with uh, some of the children with ROP, uh, we we have also seen some children who are totally blind because they have suffered from a complete retinal detachment. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to the audience how does the entire retina become detached in these children with ROP if they have not received any head trauma, they haven't fallen or hit themselves? Are there other factors that make them more prone to a retinal detachment? Sure. Well, um,
2: in retinopathy and prematurity, Um, the retinal detachment is not from a break in the retina, but rather a combination of traction and exudation, which is leakage Mm -hmm. from blood vessels. So the abnormal blood vessels that form within the retina, they form circumferentially like a skirt, around the outside, usually at the junction between the developed and undeveloped retina dealing with asthma. So um, those blood vessels, um, they they grow onto the retina, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, onto the retina and extend to the retina onto the gel the vitreous gel, which which is like a scaffold for, for those blood vessels, and they will bleed and contract, and as they bleed and contract, they will pull the retina from its normal location against the choroid, and it will elevate the retina, and you can have bleeding underneath the retina and within the jelly cavity and inside the retina as well so this evolves in a process where the retina instead of being flat like wallpaper on a drywall Mm -hmm. lining the sphere this traction will auger the retina so it will look like a volcano or a funnel where, where all of the retinal tissue is drawn up from its normal location it's stretched because the retina at this, this point in, in development is also elastic and it's stretched and distorted and it will um, it will gather right behind the lens and uh, form, you know, basically um, a disorganized mass, wow. which used to be called <clears throat> retrolental fibroplasia, and that's that's what retinopathy was called when it was first recognized, because the patients would have would present with stage five disease, and right behind the crystalline lens, all of the disorganized retina would be sitting there. That would be a very difficult situation to manage. Um, and so that retina, uh, being in that location, is not receiving proper nutrition. And... Um, doesn't have its normal support structure around it. Mm. And so those cells quickly degenerate and the visual outcomes vary, but usually if you have stage five disease, visual acuity could be no light perception or it could be light perception only or like deception with projection or maybe hand movement.
1: Mm-hmm. If if
2: the retina stays in a stage five location. Stage five means that the entire retina is detached. Stage four means that part of the retina is detached and that's divided into four A if the peripheral retina is detached only in four B if the the central retina is also involved.
1: So would would you happen to have any uh, opinion as to is the prevalence of retinal detach retinal detachment changing in ROP today since we now have the anti up? Yeah, it's absolutely gone down. It's way it's way down. It's it's,
2: it's basically a small fraction of what it was
1: say, um, you know,
2: 15 years
1: ago. God, that is great. That is great. You know, and if I were a parent and I found out that my child did have a retinal detachment, is that something that you, as as a retinal surgeon, can you reattach it? Is, is yeah, that that's something you... you could do? Yeah, that's what we do. That's what I spend most of my time doing, is reattaching retinas.
2: And, uh, you know, there's different techniques for doing that, and it depends on what's causing the retinal detachment, the configuration of it, the chronicity of it, how vascular it is. Um, There's a lot of factors in deciding planning surgery to give the best possible outcome But retinal detachment surgery is really what I'm trained to do, and especially in uh, retinal vascular diseases like um, retinopathy of prematurity, uh, which has gone down, like I said. But there's other conditions like uh, that are genetically based, for example, familial exudative vitreoretinopathy or incontinentia pigmenting or uh, juvenile retinous or persistent fetal syndrome, uh, or Coates disease. These are all conditions that can cause um, retinal detachment in a very young individual. And definitely, um, the sooner they're detected and the sooner intervention is performed, the better the outcome, and certainly we have success stories of of kids with, uh, you know, very excellent visual outcomes with some of these potentially devastating diseases. But it is important to try to catch them early um, and intervene before the central part of the retina, which is the macula becomes involved. Once the macula becomes involved then the potential for leading vision goes down considerably. Um, but we try to do you know intervene early and um, we do offer treatment for late cases as well. Um, a lot of those patients come to us, like I said, from from distant places where the screening is not as effective.
1: But you know, <laughs> this this is a really an important factor for everybody to realize that the success is very dependent on how soon that the retina ophthalmologist sees these kids and performs the surgery. And this is why it is so important. And I'm speaking as an optometrist, and I think that, you know, we're very well trained, but when it comes to identifying the retinal detachments, we're nowhere near at the level of someone such as Dr. Twanzi and other retina specialists. So we need to remind those parents that their kids need to be seen by a retinal specialist, especially if they're born premature now can you give yeah, us a, can you give us a story dr Twanzi? i i would i'm very interested to know if there has been you know a case that you've had where the child did have the retinal detachment and you did reattach it, what level of vision? What visual acuity did this child come to have?
2: You know, uh, sometimes we have some very remarkable cases. In fact, I saw a child today, his name is uh, Offniel, who um, had stage 4B retinopathy of prematurity in both eyes. Um this was probably around two
1: thousand mm-hmm.
2: And uh the you know, the, the the picture was painted as very grim. Um, uh, but I did spend a lot of time working with him and his family. Yes. And we did laser treatment and then swell buckle surgery with cryotherapy and then ultimately detrectomy. And he is now in, I think he's now like around fourth or fifth grade. Mm -hmm. I just saw him today. And this guy is a little genius and um he he uh he amazes me with his artwork and he uh he gave me this last time I saw him he gave me this origami oh
1: um, gosh really this
2: origami this origami uh project that he created but this guy is you know bound for the Ivy League and um <laughs> He's, he's, I mean, his visual acuity is, I mean, he's not, it's not outstanding. It's probably like 2050 and 2080. Wow, that's good. But, 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 but he, you wouldn't know that, um, you know, if you, um, interacted with him. Just, he's so sharp, and I, I happened to see him today. He bought me, he brought me, a, Another painting and a basket of grapefruit. So I'm like, I was amazed, you know, he's, I mean, we, we kind of cherish patients like that. They're, they kind of look at all the But, um, yeah, so we do have cases like that. But, I mean, I wish it could be every case, but, you know, fortunately, um, we, the, 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 the the science and practice is, is evolving,
1: um, so that God, we're, that's we're wonderful. Better. Yeah, it is. It is truly wonderful. And for those kids where maybe they do not have a twenty fifty or twenty sixty visual acuity, uh, we thank you, Doctor Twanzi, because you refer those kids to us for low vision. And with low-vision aids, we can get these kids to be able to read print and to see what's on the chalkboard and, you know, play their video games. So things are Absolutely.
2: moving. I'm, I'm totally indebted to you for taking care of them because actually um, that's, that's the most challenging work of all. And so thank God that you uh, are into this field. Uh, Bill, in that um, you know, we've been able to collaborate on so many patients over the years and um, it's been rewarding and there's almost always something that can be done to help a child um, mm-hmm. in one form or another. There's so many different options and it's a matter of uh, maximizing each child's potential. And, um, there's an art, art and the science to that. And you, you're
1: definitely the, the world's leader in, in that, in that realm still. So, thank yeah, you. Very well, much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's very yeah. kind of you to say thank you. But you know, the reality is it is this team that we have here on the call tonight. You know, it is Karen and all of her staff there with Patty and Liz and Elizabeth. And we have Dr. Diane Christian who does counseling, you know, for the parents yes. and the family and the children. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. all of this together because there's so many different things that are needed. And as a team, we could provide all of these services to help them, and it's it's really it's really a wonderful thing to go to work. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Doctor Tuanja, I wanted to ask: Do you have a moment or two to take any questions that we might have from any of our audience? Certainly. Okay. Thank you very very much. Um, so, if any of you in the audience. If you have any questions for Dr. Tawanzi, go ahead and unmute your phone, uh, introduce your, yourself, and go ahead and ask him that question. Good evening, Dr. Tawanzi. So I heard you mention you have an office in Palm
0: Springs. Yes. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, We will be uh, within uh, before the end of the year.
1: Because I have a couple families who live in the low desert near Palm Springs. And it right. just so happens, um, about six months ago, they were diagnosed with Coats. But I have one family who's
0: looking to, um, get a second opinion. So I, mm-hmm. I when you said Palm Springs, I, I got really excited. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so I thought, wow, nobody better than to send them to you then.
2: Yes. <laughs> I, I'd be, I'd be happy to see them. Um, Right now, um, we're just um, we're we're joining an office that's already in existence over there. Um, It's actually in Rancho Mirage, Um, and I would anticipate um, by the end of the summer that we'll be out there Um, if they if they want. If they want to come to our Pasadena office, we'd be certainly happy to see them right away um, and um, you, you can maybe um, send me your text me your information i will I'll let you know the day that that office uh, Our first day
1: of clinic, I'll let you know. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Twanzi, for uh, Patty's patient there, when you take into consideration Coates' disease, is time Mm -hmm. of the essence for this family? Is it too long for them to wait for the end of the summer? And it would be, you know, very important that they come to Pasadena now? Oh, yeah. With Coates' disease, (laughs) <laughs> the prognosis
2: is very much dependent on um how quickly intervention takes place. Uh because uh kids with Coates disease, if they're detected early, it's a fairly simple treatment, typically with laser oh. and they can pretty much have normal vision their entire life. Oh, if wow, they're treated, really? they're, If they're treated early, um, before the, the retina starts to detach, especially before the central retinal kind mm-hmm. retina of detaches, it. Coates' disease. It's typically an evolving clinical syndrome that, um, starts with, you know, um, Leaking capillaries and injectatic vessels, typically in, in the periphery, mm-hmm. and that that leakage accumulates over months. Then it will, I mean, it can lead to neovascular glaucoma, vitreous hemorrhage, retinal detachment. And even to a, a, and even to a completely blind, painful eye. There's a huge huge spectrum of Coates disease from the very mild to the devastating. And, um, the most important prognostic factor is what was the condition of the disease when treatment was initiated. Okay. So uh, I would definitely, if I, a child with Coates disease, I would not be sitting on, I would be um, aggressively uh, monitoring and intervening
1: to (laughs) prevent any, you know, complications. Yeah, thank you. That's good news. So how can Patty communicate with your Pasadena office to get this child in as quickly as possible?
0: Is okay, there a so
2: person? Pa- Patty, let me give you my cell phone number. It's area code two two three. Uh huh. Three one three.
1: Five seven five seven. So
2: five seven five seven. Yes. Yeah. So the easiest way to get a patient in um, is to uh, text me, um, you know, the patient's name, information, diagnosis, and um, how soon they want to be seen. And I, I will, uh, I will make sure that that happens. I, will, I need, you know, I need the, the family's phone number and, and everything,
1: and we will get them in. In, okay. In, you know, so. uh, thank you very much, Cal. Patty, did you get that? So it's 323-313-5757? That's yeah. correct. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Twansey. You know, you're going to get so many phone calls on your private phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's,
2: that's okay. You, you can also use... You can also email me at uh K C A W A N S Y at Gmail. But um, sometimes uh the emails get lost. I mean, I, I miss a bunch of emails every week. But the so I mean if you if, but you know, don't don't be bashful about texting me. Um, but if you just if you if it's something that's not urgent at all, and you don't want to text, you can also email. But you might not hear from me for a while, so um,
1: I'd recommend the text. Oh, thank you, thank, thank you. you very, thank very you
0: much. So much, Dr. Twanji, for all this information. I certainly learned a great deal, and I appreciate it. Um, it was fun. Yeah.
1: Thank,
2: thanks for having me. Oh
0: thank you very well, much. we are honored that um, you had the time to speak to us, so thank you so much.